who are filling the role of dad in someone's life. Now, for some people, some of us in this room, it's a little bit difficult today, but we want to still honor and remember even the dads who aren't here on this earth anymore. Can somebody hit the lights? Thank you, Matt. I can see everybody. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we, we first see Father's Day in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm kidding. Father's Day is a pretty young holiday. It's a secular holiday. They finally formalized it in the, I think it was in the 70s. Don't quote me on that. You want to do a little homework, that'd be a fun project. But it's not like an old holiday, but it's a, it's a worthwhile one. Um, our society is in short supply of dads who understand what their job is. Our primary overarching earthly task as fathers is to, to be for our children and wives the clearest picture of their father in heaven in provision, protection, and wisdom, and guidance, and most of all, in love. We can't ever achieve this goal on our own, but if we take the perspective of the moon, we can do just fine. See, the moon isn't the source of any light whatsoever. It's just properly positioned to reflect the light of the sun onto the earth. Well, my prayer for each of us dads this morning is that we can properly position our lives to reflect the love of Jesus from our source to the subject, which is our families. a worthwhile opportunity today to pause and recognize our job as dads to show appreciation and honor the dads in our lives. It's tempting. It's tempting to come like we get society, we made this calendar and we put holidays on the calendar and some of them are like biblical. In fact, really only one of them is really legitimately biblical and that's Easter. Um, beyond that, there's not really an instruction to keep, even Christmas, that we don't find that in Scripture where it's like, make sure and honor Christmas the day that Jesus was born. We do it, and it's good, and it's fine, and I enjoy Christmas. I, in fact, if you know me very well, you know I love Christmas. But, but then there's all these other ones. We got Mother's Day, and we got Father's Day, and we got, I mean, our calendars are full of them. You just flip any month of the year, has got all kinds of things that we can celebrate, things that we can take the Sunday and kind of position it around that. But you know, when we do that, and, and I'm for, I love my dad, I've got some really good father figures in my life, and I, I'm for focusing on them, appreciating them, but when we make our Sunday about an earthly person, uh, we're the point of it then. And how many of you know that our, the point of us gathering is all to glorify Jesus? It's to make much, and it's, it's kind of, this, this is goes to what we've talked about for the last couple of years about when we study the Bible even. When we study scripture, it's so easy to look only for us, to look first for us, to look only, where am I in this story? Who's the Goliath in my life? What's the Jordan River of my current circumstances? And go, the list goes on. We can find ourselves in everything, and we're going to look at that in a little bit of scripture today, but it's so easy to even take our Sunday, well, we're going to really talk about all the good dads in scripture, and we are going to talk about as Tom kind of alluded to, we're going to talk about our father, the ultimate father figure um, in all of humanity's existence. But if we make this day about earthly dads, it's fine. And it feels good. It's warm and fuzzy, but it's not the gospel. No, you know, how many of you know that any earthly father figure will fail you? They're just going to at some point. If they haven't yet, just wait about five minutes. 
I can testify being a dad, it's really hard to not screw up sometimes because I'm an earthly figure. Now, I want to do the best job that I can to reflect Jesus to my kids, and I feel like there's such a, we got two spectrum, you know, there's everything's a spectrum today, and so you got two ends of it. You got one end of it where, like, there's a portion of our culture that's trying to do away with manliness altogether. We just don't need any. And then the other end of the spectrum, because everything's a pendulum and a spectrum and it's like one side or the other, is like Father's Day is about eating raw meat with your bare hands and walking over coals and doing hard things, sleeping two hours, eating the coffee grounds in the bottom. It's like, that's masculinity. And that's what we need that. One end or the other. And neither one of them, you know, neither one of them really point to Jesus. I'm all for strong men. I think we see it in Scripture that as a father, as a man, as a son, we are called to walk with strength and to be the head of our household and to be the defenders and the providers for our family. But our time this morning, what I really want us to focus on is our father, our father. We're gonna kind of do this. We looked last week at the call of God on our lives and we didn't make it through everything, which I was shocked and some of you were shocked because of how long it was. Like, how much more could there have possibly been? Because we went long. We're not going to go long today. And I've got a few little things set up so that there's, there could be explosions or something go off. To, it's like, we're done. <laughs> we're not going to go long. But we started, we kind of pivoted out of, uh, Dan Garropy shared the week before. And he had seven points. If you, I don't know if those are still up on the, or available to put up on the screen. But I'll go over them here quick. He talked about the call of God in our lives that we'll use the gifts and the talents and the passions that God has given us. He talked about the call of God in our lives that will cost us something. And, and it may take longer and look different than anticipated. It will be bigger than just us, whatever God calls us to. It won't just be you and I and our little sphere. It will be bigger than that. It will, it will involve others. The call of God in our lives will require perseverance. It will require that, you know, the first half a mile of any run, it's like, it's okay, it's fairly easy if you run with any regularity. But then that, like that second, third mile, it's like, why am I still doing this? I could just stop. The ground's not gonna attack me if I stop. I could just stop right here. It will require, but that's where perseverance, where you're, you've burned up that initial source of strength or, or energy in your life, and you've gotta draw on something deeper, you got to tell your body, all right, let's kick it into reserve. Let's get on to burning what we're actually out here for. It will require whatever God has called you to. I promise you it will require perseverance. You will have to draw on supply. The sixth thing that he talked about is it will encourage us, or it will encourage and challenge those around us. Seeing someone else pursuing the call of God in their lives, it quickens something. It sparks something on the inside. It's like, hey, Trey's walking out what God has called. I should walk out what God called me to do. There's an encouragement in it. And then the seventh point that he made was it will be worth it. I'm not trying to hammer on these, but I think there's so much in it. That was kind of what I, what I shared last week came from that. And I just, I just think it's really important that we spend, if we're going to spend time together on Sunday morning, we got to talk about the gospel, which is our ultimate call in this life, and how to further the gospel in our society. Carrying the gospel to anybody around us. It's not about trying, to be, trying harder to be a better person. That's fine. I'm for, you want to be a better person? By all means, go try harder to be a better person. But that's not the call that God's placed on your life. God placed a call on your life, and it is to carry the gospel. It's to be the moon, to reflect Jesus to everybody around you. The gospel, the good news, doesn't involve you. 
It's a gift to you. It's not like, well, you know, God did 60%, so where's your 40? That's not the gospel. You can preach that if you rip things out of scripture and out of context, you can twist it. It's like, everybody really should try harder to be better. There's all kinds of lists, and if you're, I'm not on social media, for any of you that was confused and thought I was, I'm not, but my wife is and periodically shares things with me, and people love to find the lists that are in scripture, don't they? They love to find the disqualifications. Let not these things be named among you, and Ironically, most of them are named among us, and usually they're named among whoever's posting it, but there's usually one or two that are really big and vulgar, and it's like, those aren't. We tend to, like, we can, we can preach out of the Bible and include ourselves in it, but that does a disservice to the gospel, because you're not in it. We're the recipient of something. We're not, it's not a 60, 40, 50-50, 70-30, 80-20 if any of you, we've talked about this in depth, righteousness, which is what we need to legally stand before the Father. If we leave this life without righteousness, it's not, it's over. It's, we don't go to the happy place, the sweet by and by, to spend time with Jesus. We don't see our loved ones. It's not, that, we have to be righteous when we leave. When we check out of this life, we have to be legally right to stand before God. No different than when we exit a courtroom, if someone's accused of committing a heinous crime, when they leave the courtroom, if they want to move on with their life, they must be legally right. They have to have been acquitted of the charges brought against them. They have to be ruled not guilty. Simple. This is the gospel for us. We need, this is the, the setup for the gospel. We need to be ruled not guilty. The most important thing, and from that, there's all kinds of things that will grow in. Once you realize that Jesus made you not guilty, you will walk different. You'll look different. You'll read different things. You'll see people different. You'll interact with people different. The Holy Spirit will begin to transform us through Scripture through the spirit quickening, you'll, it will happen, but we've made that the point. We've entered ourselves into the equation. Jesus plus our own efforts equals slightly better than the neighbors next door, and hopefully, how many people have ever heard somebody, I hope, you, you know, you're going to heaven when you die? Well, I hope so. That is not certain enough. I hope so? Why? Because you think you're better than the neighbors next door? That's our case we're going to bring before Almighty God. It's like, I'm not sure about where I stand legally, but you remember the Jones? Like, they had a lot bigger issues going on than what we had. That's it? No, it's way bigger than that. The gospel is about Jesus making us right with the Father. He did it all and gave it to us as a gift, which is so hard for our minds to understand. We can't wrap our little peanut brains around that reality and you, you can see this if you study church history. If you look at church history, we keep getting back to where it's like, well, we could be involved in this. Well, what about we could be involved in this? What about entering us back into the equation? And it's, we cycle back, and then the gospel is like shined anew in a generation, and hey, you know what? It's all about Jesus, and then you leave us with the gospel for a while, and it's like, it could be Jesus plus Isaac. What if we did that? We could preach that because there's some areas that I'm doing pretty good. We could say Jesus plus Isaac can help I'll be more right with God because of, it's like, but what about the 9,000 ways I'm screwing up? Uh, it's, it probably should be just all about Jesus. Let's be safe. 
God's call on our life, on each of our lives, is will probably look different. We talked about that last week. Jesus and Paul were both in positions where the fear of man's approval could have swayed them significantly. We looked just a little bit how our goal isn't to be remembered, uh, but no one has ever complied themselves into the history book. <laughs> like nobody's ever like, I just fit. You know, we, we looked at, and we're not gonna re-preach everything, but so much of our society is geared towards fitting in, looking like everybody else around us, looking to the left and to the right to measure our pace or position is one of the most dangerous metrics in existence. But we know, and we looked at this a little last week, but our heavenly commission, when weighed properly, will always outweigh the approval of man. Whatever God's called you to, whatever that thing is, it could be, and it, it, we, I hesitate to use that because it's so easy to talk about whatever God's called you to and you're ready to go start a new thing. Like, let's go, let's go start a new 501c3 and we're gonna do whatever, the, and maybe that is the thing that God's called you. I don't wanna say it's not, but I, I, I get nervous because sometimes it's like, sometimes what God has called you to is what you're doing right now. It's to be a dad, it's to be a mom, it's to be a son or a daughter, it's to be a mechanical engineer, it's to be whatever, a farmer, a cop, a retiree, whatever the thing is, it might not be a different vocation, it might not be a different thing, it might be, it probably is, the call of God on your life is to see yourself through the lens of the cross and reflect the gospel into wherever you are. It may be a thing. It might be the Lord's like doing this thing where he's going over and over again, like I want you to go do this, I want you to go start this, I want you to go talk to this person. It takes a tremendous step of courage to follow what God has called us to in spite of our societal norms and our particular group. You know, we do the group think. It's like, well, what's everybody else doing? We talk about this in church. It's like, um, everybody kind of has the same model, so we should do the same model as them, but, but better, because we want all their people. It's like, even in church, we do this, it's like, well, kind of, where's everybody else going? Like, what's everybody else doing for their leadership structure? Like, it doesn't matter. What has the Lord called us to do? Let's do it with wisdom. Let's do it with courage. As we step into what God has called us to, whatever that thing is, whether it's what you're doing now, or whether it is a new thing, it becomes imperative to know who is for us. It is the most important thing for you to know who is for you when you step into doing something, especially something new and especially something different. It's easy if you are doing the thing, the, the thing that everyone around you is doing. It's like it doesn't take a tremendous amount of courage and you don't really need to know that anybody's for you because pretty much everybody else is going the same direction as you. But you want to turn around and you want to go a different direction, you better know who's for you because everybody else ain't turning around. They're going to keep going and you're going to have to go at what seems like or feels like alone. You need to know, we need to know who is for us. The scripture we're going to look at today is usually taught from one of two perspectives, and we're not going to do either one of those. If you got your Bible, you want to turn to Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. There was something, the Lord has really been working on me when I study scripture, and we've talked, we talk about this over and over, and some of you that are here every week are like, enough with that. It'll never be enough with that. Jesus is what scripture is about. There's this kind of a misconception that it's all about us. Find me in this. Find me in this story. And this story is no different. 
We're going to read through it, and then we'll kind of come back, come back and go through it. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. This is Jesus speaking. He said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a portion of the goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Verse 13, not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country, and there wasted all his possessions with prodigal living. When he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land. He began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him to the fields to feed swine. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods, even that the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He arose and came to his father. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry, would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Verse 30, But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. The father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. Bow with me if you would. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. Lord, I thank you for the things that are contained within it, the layers of Scripture. and Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would breathe fresh and new on the Scripture for each person that's here. This is a common passage, Lord, but I believe that you have something special for us this morning to see in this. You would reveal a little glimpse of your heart. Pray a blessing over the words that I speak and over the hearts and ears that hear them. In Jesus' name, amen. What a story. Jesus was such an excellent, hi Rip. He was such an excellent storyteller. This story is almost always taught from the perspective of one of the two boys, either the oldest, and we find ourselves in the story of the oldest, or in the youngest, which is most common. Maybe we should just have him speak. <laughs> most common we see, what's this story called? Anybody know, just shout it out. That's the story of the prodigal son. That's a good story. That's what we should call it, the story of the prodigal son. In fact, if you look in most of our Bibles, it says the parable or the story of the lost son or the prodigal son. We've called it that. And as I was 
thinking and praying about this whole, the calling of the Lord on our lives, it struck me that this is more of a story about the father than it is the sons. The sons, it's just they're static. There's contrast between the boys. We see good decisions or what's perceived to be good decisions. We see openly terrible decisions, the fruit of those terrible decisions. There's a whole bunch of symbolism we can see that you know, we, we lose it a little bit in our culture because we don't, you know, we eat bacon and we have sausage and it's, you know, we're post the new covenant and everything that Jesus revealed to Peter about the things that we can take, eat. But in their day and age, feeding hogs for a Jewish person was very, very, it's like, you're doing what now? There's a, all kinds of symbolism in this story. But really what I, what I feel like the Lord has for us this morning is to look at the father in this. This is a story of our father. What, what did Jesus want to reveal? In a man-focused, man-centric worldview, it's all about which son am I? We got to be one of the two, and maybe we are. There's things that we can align, we can see. It's like, well, I've been the older brother, and I've certainly done my time in the pig pen. And we can preach that, and it's fine. But I really believe we see Jesus revealing, pulling the curtain back on the, our Father's heart for us. The father in this story, he was known for his generosity and he was approachable. Simple, like, what? He was, no, he was known for his generosity. What, what should he have told the younger son? A stingy father would have said, back to the field with you, kid. I'm not giving you anything. You haven't earned it and your attitude stinks. That's not what we see the father he willfully gives, by all means, I'll send this with you. Now, do you think for a minute that that father was like, I think he's gonna go and do very good things with this. I mean, a kid comes to his dad, look, I'm out of this family business, I want my half of it. You can just see the attitude just dripping from this kid. It's like, I just want, um, I want my half, and I plan on doing ridiculous things. I mean, he didn't tell his dad that, but any of you that have ever been a dad, it's like, I'm pretty sure I know what my son intends with this. <laughs> and the wise thing would have been like, we could just not tell him about some of the investments and stuff. Let's just give him like half the cash in the safe or something. Like, here's like 400 bucks. Good luck. No, he divides his estate. You know, this dad, I mean, think about it. This guy was pretty wealthy. There was, there was some cost in this for him. He didn't, we don't see that he split it in thirds. We don't see it's like, well, I'm going to keep my third because, like, I got to look out for me and mine. Nope. Split it down the middle. Cost him tremendously. He may have had, like, I think about from the standpoint of farm, like a, a farm background, we see that there was some agriculture involved in this. We don't know. He might have had to sell some farms. It's like, well, you want half of this. Like, it's going to take some, we're going to shuffle some stuff around. And he was generous. He gives it to his son freely. How many of you know, it's like, okay, this father obviously was not operating in much wisdom. He should have put it in a trust, and there should have been some trustees involved. Like, no, you cannot have any more money for unscrupulous living. But he, it's just hands him check, possibly cash, we don't know, gold. Generous. The father was known for his generosity, and the father was approachable. Our Father in heaven is also known for his tremendous generosity. 
Though much of religion has drifted from this reality. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34 reads, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and also makes intercession for us. Do you know, church, there's no greater gift that a father can give than his own son? We get wrapped up in our earthly stuff, don't we? Like, well, if God's gonna be generous, I should have a full bank account. You can make decisions that lead to a full bank account, and that's great. You can make decisions that lead to an, lead to an empty bank account, and that's not as great. I've been in both spots. Um, but this isn't talking about your bank account. This is talking about, as Jesus always was, something far bigger than money. There's nothing wrong with money. Like, it takes money to, we have air conditioning, and we have lights, and we have sound stuff. Money, it's, it's, it's part of this world. It just, it's make, what makes it work? But that's not what Jesus was getting at here. Our Father is generous beyond any concept of finances. And he's given this inheritance to us when we don't earn it. Just like the son didn't deserve it. He didn't earn that. That was his dad's empire that he split with him. Jesus was given on our behalf to give us, as, the author, as Paul wrote in Romans, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who made you God's elect? Who made me God's elect? Jesus. It is God who justifies. And I love the, the, the attitude in this verse 34 of Romans 8. Who is he who condemns? What is that? Somebody brings a, somebody tries to bring a condemnation against one of, someone who's justified by God? All the attorneys on earth, all of the special counsels on earth, you're gonna bring a charge against somebody that Jesus made right? There's no evidence on, like, the evidence, all the evidence in our lives does not compare to the blood of Jesus that was shed on our behalf. There's no, who can bring a charge? There's nothing more generous than God sending his son Jesus to die in our place. And he knew there's a percentage of our lives that we squander that reality. We don't live in light of it. We don't honor it. We live foolishly, licentiously, Make dumb choices. But you see, the Father didn't hold back. Our Father in heaven is known for his tremendous generosity. He didn't even spare his own son on our behalf. Our Father in heaven is approachable. You see in that story, the Father was approachable. How do we know this? The Son had the courage, we, we give the son this, like I say it, even when I said it there, we, the son had the courage. The son was not, he was not a, I don't know that the son was super courageous. I see that the son was pretty stupid. Like he, and usually stupid and courage, they're not in the same jar. But he knew he could go to his dad he recited his speech to his dad, and he delivered his speech. And it was pretty forced. It's like, uh, 
I, don't, I know that I have sinned against you. I made these mistakes, but um, I would like to be a servant. Could I be possibly instated as the lowest of the low, a servant in your house? And then his dad totally is like, I don't even, I, whatever, I don't know. Let's get the calf and the robe and my son's home. So am I a servant or, nope, you're getting the robe. You're my son. It's easy to see he's approachable from the prodigal standpoint, but you know he's approachable even to the older son. You see the older son who was upset and indignant and self-righteous. I have not made the mistakes that my stupid younger brother made. Sorry for the language. I feel like this isn't fair. He said to him, he goes out to his son. I'm gonna go out to him. We, we look a lot of times, there's a song years ago when I was growing up about when, the, when God ran. Anybody remember that song? And it's, this, it's about this picture of the father running to his prodigal son. And that's powerful. If you've ever lived maybe not great, boy, that's powerful. It's like he's coming running for us. But you know what's just as important? But he was angry and would not go in. Verse 28, therefore his father came out to him. What? Now the father ran to the prodigal son. He did. And he also went out to the religious, legalistic, older son. The father went to him. Now, all of us that are in, we're on the grace side of things. It's like, I don't think the father's going after the religious elites. Well, in this story, the father goes to both of them. He goes out pursuing both of them. Not just the one who smelled like pigs. He went out, it's like, where's my other son? And he went to the other son. You think there's, it's so easy to get in this spot where we think God maybe is pursuing us but not them, or God's pursuing them and not us. David revealed the Father's heart all through the Psalms. He's constantly coming after you. That's an early picture of what Jesus reveals here in Luke. The father's always, he's going out. He sees his younger son, he's running. He was waiting for his son. He runs out there and meets him, smelling like pigs. His life's trashed. You know what else we don't see? This is interesting. This is a side note, but it's interesting. I mean, just, it's fun to sometimes get into the story. Like, get into the story. You're the dad, and you've been so generous. And it's like, it's a pretty big deal that you've, like, waited for your younger son. But you remember, you split your empire. You sold Farm ground that's been in your family for generations and you gave it to him. And I mean, at some point, do you not say, so like, rough net worth? Like, do, are we positive? Or what did you do with all of the, do you have a, perhaps an entourage coming with the rest of your finances? Is there, what did you do? We gave you all that money. Have you done anything? What did you do with it? You didn't ask him anything. I mean, to be fair, it's pretty evident. He smells like pigs. And he just asked if he could be a servant. <laughs> but it's like, there's no, you don't see the father even sort of touching base, like, so you don't have anything? You have a, I mean, do you have an account somewhere offshore, maybe? Anything? Nothing. You want to be a servant. You want me to feed you. You squandered half of my empire, and now you want me to feed you? You don't see any of that. The father's heart for this boy. It's our father's heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. 
our Heavenly Father is approachable. We can come boldly. I thought about this, you know what, like the, the word dichotomy is the study of two. It's like you look at two, two things. It's a real simple word. And I thought about the, the interesting thing that seems, it's, it's, we can preach Hebrews 4.16, let us come boldly to the throne room of grace. And, and we can get pretty almost trite with our approach of the Father. It's like, well, whatever, you know, whatever, we'll just come, whatever. But even in the young, son, <clears throat> the young prodigal's approach, there was, a, there was a reverence for his dad. Like he was aware, it's like, I, I need to approach, I, I need to have some reverence for this. And I think about when Jesus modeled prayer for us, gave the disciples an example of prayer. He said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There's an honor in the name of our Father. Now, in our culture today, um, reverence of a father figure or a grandfather figure is, is kind of lost. It's lost over the generations. Like, when I was growing up, which wasn't that long ago, everyone, uh, I remember my grandpa very clearly letting me know that children are to be seen and not heard. And it was like, it, it wasn't like a discussion. We were, he wasn't opening a discussion with me about whether or not I agreed with that. That was a statement and that was how we was going to live. It's like, you should just be quiet. And obviously that didn't take real well with me. We had a lot of conversations, but there was this, there has been in times past a reverence towards a father figure or a grandfather figure. We've kind of lost that a little bit. And unfortunately, we've lost that a little bit in our approach of our father in heaven. While scripture is true and the author of Hebrews is accurate, we can come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of needs. Jesus is also accurate in his description of how we approach the Father. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There is a reverence that is attached. We, that word hallowed, it's, a, it's kind of, it's like, it's like the only place we ever use that word, right? Would be like in the Lord's Prayer. I don't know what else we're, well, there's an interesting, there's another place that we use that word. And, uh, Abraham Lincoln used it, and many presidents have used it over the last couple hundred years of our country. Abraham Lincoln used it at uh, the battlefields of Gettysburg and Antietam. It's hallowed ground. There were several presidents and, and all kinds of other people that have used that word in referring, you know, just a couple weeks ago we celebrated D-Day, and a lot of people in our generation, we don't celebrate D-Day. It's not a thing. It's like, well, I don't know, I remember it was something in a, one of the world wars. It was a really big deal. It was, it was a huge deal. And I'm not comparing it to the cross of Jesus, but there's a picture in it that the beaches of Normandy, where thousands and thousands of allied troops died, to fight for freedom, to fight for liberty, to fight against oppression, they gave their lives. And they were told the first couple of waves that went to shore. Now, if any of you, the D-Day invasion was, it was a water invasion. They took boats. They drove the boats as fast and as hard as they could towards the shore, getting torn up by machine guns. And they ran and they ran and they ran. And they told these troops, the first, I think it was two waves. I know it was the first waves. Their commanders told them, you are in the first wave and you're going to be going to whichever one of the beachheads and we're going to take this beachhead. And you are not going to survive. 
You say, I'm for sure not going to survive, or there's a chance I won't? You won't. Wave number one, toast. Wave number two, toast. But eventually, we're going to gain a foothold on Europe. And the Allies, those troops, 18, some of them 17 years old, 18, 20, 21, 25 year olds, they loaded their stuff, they packed their bag like they were going to survive. They wrote, they, they wrote their letters like they weren't. They got on the boats and they went to shore. And on that ground, it's, there's a sacredness in that ground. Now, none of them were God. None of them were Jesus. None of them sacrificed for our eternity. But even just the earthly sacrifice of their earthly lives made on behalf of freedom has made that ground what we now say hallowed. It's set apart. It's sacred ground. It's sacred ground for us today, even though some of us didn't even live in the, many of us didn't live anywhere near the time that those troops died. But it's sacred because they gave their lives for a greater good. There was a bigger picture going on. When we approach our Father, His name is sacred. It is set apart. There was a sacrifice made by God the Father and by Jesus. It wasn't just Jesus that made the sacrifice. God sacrificed, the Father sacrificed his only son. And his name is sacred. His name is holy. We can come boldly. We can come boldly to the throne of grace, unmerited favor. But we come boldly not because of us. This is the, like, we come boldly. It's like, well, yeah, Jesus loves me because I'm his kid. Yes, who made you his kid? Who made me? We come boldly through the sacrifice of Jesus, which has, if we understand it properly, there's a weight to that. It's a good weight. Don't everyone's kind of getting down. Like, I don't want us to get down on this. There's a weight to that, though. Jesus died on our behalf. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God created in Christ Jesus so that we can become legally right with God so that when we step out of this life, it's not a, I hope I make it. No, I'm legally right with God. Our Father will meet us wherever we are. The father in this story meets his prodigal son and the older son. And you know, he doesn't struggle to interact with or to minister to either one. It's not like, I don't even know what to do with you, older son. You, so, you don't understand me. You don't understand what we're doing. You didn't get that you've been here with me all this time and all this stuff is yours. He doesn't struggle to interact with him. He just meets him right where he is. The prodigal, he, I mean, as an earthly dad, I feel like that prodigal would be pretty tough to interact with also. It's like, you did what? With half of my empire? He doesn't struggle to interact with him at all. He's like, hey, you're home. You were lost. You're found. You smell awful. Let's get a robe and put it on you and celebrate that you're home. He doesn't even stop on the, you smell awful. It's just like, absolutely. Let's, you know what? We've been waiting to kill that fatted calf for something to celebrate. Let's celebrate this one's home. And then he goes and gets the older son. He doesn't struggle to interact or to minister to either one. Even after the younger son functions as a carnal idiot, the father is still moved by compassion and runs to meet him. His tremendous love for his son is greater than any other feeling or emotion. Jesus walked this out for us in his earthly ministry. He ministered to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. 
who would represent the older son. He ministered to the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8. John chapter 4, if you're taking notes, is where the woman at the well. Jesus ministers to each, and he doesn't struggle. You don't see in John 3 where he's like, I don't know what to do with you, Nicodemus. No, he ministers, right? meets him right there. He's like, listen, you gotta be born of water, and then you gotta be born of the Spirit. Now, Nicodemus was confused. We see that the older brother was a little confused about what's going on, but Jesus doesn't struggle to minister to either one. Now, the word used in the story is moved by compassion. That's how our English translates it in verse 20. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Yes. Verse, verse 20. That verse where he says, and it had compassion, he moved, was moved by compassion, um, it's the same word that's used to describe what moved Jesus on several instances. And you know, we're sold a little, I don't know, I can blame the translators, but some of it's just, it's in the English, like we see it's, it's worded almost the same in English. So we can throw stones at the translators and say, well, you know, the Greek was better, it was more clear. Yeah, it might have been if we spoke Greek, we don't speak Greek, but there is, if we're in scripture, we'll see, wait a second, moved by compassion, where have I seen that? Where have I seen moved by compassion? Well, in Matthew chapter 9, Verses 35 through 38, we'll read. This is Jesus moved by compassion. Now, there's a, uh, in that culture, in the culture of the Greek language, the moved by compassion, they believed it was bowels of mercy. They thought the, your bowels, your lower abdomen was the seat of, of emotion, of feeling. And we're like, that seems weird. But it's pretty accurate even today for us. Like, you, anybody ever get a gut feeling? Like, I just got a gut feeling about something. If you haven't, you should go to Cedar Point and you'll get a gut feeling of some things. Where you go, I mean, it's like, whoo, my, whoo, that just got me. You know, it's like that, that seat of our emotion, of our feeling. This is what the father felt, compassion. It was like he couldn't control himself. I, I have to go to my son. It wasn't like I probably should. He is my kid. I'm not sure what I'm gonna do with him now, but I should go. No, it wasn't that at all. It was like, I have to. I'm running to my kid. I've got to go to him. That's this moved by compassion. It's the same word used to describe what moved Jesus on several instances. We'll start in Matthew chapter nine, verses 35 through 38. It says, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Thank you, Jesus. What a clear picture of our Father's heart. Verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Same Greek word. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus tells the story about the father knowing full well that's what moved him. The same feeling, the same thing that controlled the father and he went running to his prodigal son Jesus is like, I can relate to that. That's why he can tell this story. He was moved by compassion. Matthew chapter 15, he fed the 5,000 based on the same thing. He was moved with compassion because it had been a long time since they'd eaten. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus heals two blind men after being moved by compassion regarding their inability to see. Jesus understood what it meant to be moved by compassion so he could accurately articulate the father's heart for the prodigal for his sons. 
We start out talking about God's call on our lives. It's important that we know before you embark on another week of God's call, I was gonna say before you embark on whatever God's called you to, but that sounds like, well, no one here is doing it. It might be just another week of what God has called you to. But before you step into it, it is important that you understand the magnitude of who goes with you, of who is coming running to meet you, and of who will come outside to the party. It's like, do you think the father was like, you know what, this party's too fun for me. Let me go find somebody who's a grump. No, he's like, where's my son? Where's my son? The same feeling that he felt when his prodigal was walking down the road, he felt for his not prodigal religious elite kid who thought he hadn't screwed up. It's like, where's my son? It's imperative that we know to step out into the battlefield that we know who is with us, that we know who is for us and who will meet us at any and every turn. Romans chapter 8, Paul explains if God is for us, then who can effectively be against us? Just like what we, we read a little bit of Romans 8, and 8 was a 31, 32 area. Who brings a charge against God? Like, who, it's not that, no, what Paul's saying is not like, well, no one will bring a charge against God's elect. That's not what Paul's saying in that, because we know people bring charges. Spirits bring charges. The enemy brings charges. There's all kinds of charges brought against us. But what Paul's saying is, effectively, who is bringing a charge? Like you were made, you were justified by the judge, the father, the creator of heaven and earth. He sent his son, put his blood over you, and you're now right with the father. Somebody's going to bring a charge against that? Nobody's going to bring an effective charge against that. All charges against us will be tossed out. That's what it means to be born again. It doesn't mean, well, once you get born again, you're never going to screw up. Oh, you'll still screw up, but charge all the charges that will be brought against you will be tossed. That's good news. If you understand anything about the legal system, like the legal system is another one of those things that just gives us a glimpse of like, oh, there's a legal system eternally also. And eternally, I'm justified. Thank you, Jesus. And you think about that in terms of what we were talking about with, with D-Day. Who paid for us? Why are we free today? There's a lot of things we can look at. Well, because of this and because of this. Yes, but in part, because of the troops that stormed the beaches that day, we're free today. That's big. That deserves some respect. How much greater the one who sat, the only one who could sacrifice for our, on our behalf spiritually. The reason you're like, well, I don't know if it's greater to be spiritually right or physically free. Well, I'll tell you what. Physical stuff ends. Spiritual does not. Spiritual trumps physical. You can be in bondage physically, and that's unfortunate. But when we're dead spiritually, that's eternal just like when we're alive spiritually, it's eternal. It's greater than anything. Who can bring a charge? We had the greatest sacrifice, the only one who could legally sacrifice on our behalf. Do you know, if Jesus had not died, paid for our sins, defeated death, hell, and the grave, resurrected and ascended, if he had not done all those things, even our eternal death would not pay the bill. Now, that might seem like, what point, what, like, what is that? It means, so, no one was capable of that sacrifice but 
Jesus. It wasn't like, well, we could have found another Savior. No, you couldn't. Jesus was it. He was the only one legally able to sacrifice and to pay that debt. It's a glimpse, the story of the prodigal son and his father. It's a picture of Jesus for us, the father's heart for us. There is no thing spared on our behalf by our father, no thing. You say, well, I don't have as nice a, that's not what I'm talking about. Spiritually, the big thing, the most important, there is nothing spared on our behalf. So we should walk out of this place and go to our businesses, go to our jobs, go to our families, go to whatever social thing. We should hold our head high. Not because nothing's ever gonna come against us, but spiritually and eternally, you're right with the Father. Oh, yeah, I, I'm good. You can go to the doctor's office, confident. I'm confident. Not that no, no weapon's ever gonna be formed against you, but it ain't ever gonna prosper. I'm legally right. Do you understand what it means to be legally, eternally right? It's one thing if you get a sentence. If you, someone brought charges against you and those, it was like 20 year sentence. Oh my goodness, could be in prison for 20 years. Seems like forever, right? Depending on how old, how old we are, that could be the rest of our lives in prison for 20 years. That could be terrible. Understand, the charges brought against humanity were eternal. 20 years of dropping the bucket. Eternal charges which means forever charges, which means there ain't no getting out. You can't even die out of those charges. Whew. But somebody came and paid that bill on our behalf? Thank you, Jesus. The magnitude of that, this is just the story we looked at today, it's just a glimpse. There was no thing spared on behalf of his sons. The Father's heart is so deep, it runs so deep for us. And I believe with everything inside me, it is his desire for us to get a glimpse of that. Because that enables us, that empowers us. If God's called you to go do something hard, go do it confidently. Knowing that greater is he that is within you than he that is after you. That's how I always memorized that when I was a kid. It's greater than he, is he that is within you than he that is within the world. But I always remembered it. Greater is he that is in you than he that is after you. The calling of God on our lives is broadly, the big call is to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations, teaching the things that Jesus taught, using our God-given gifts to equip the saints to do this work of the ministry. The specific call of God on our lives, that's unique to each one of you. I'm not gonna tell you what that is. The Holy Spirit will reveal that to you. It's specific it will be verified, it will be reinforced through scripture as you study the word and as you pray. He'll, he'll give you the lefts, he'll give you the rights, he'll give you the speed ups, he'll give you the pause, which is the hardest one on earth for me to follow. Just, that's a little confession. When the Lord's like, pause, I'm like, I couldn't hear you, I'll just keep going. A pause, stop. It's hard for us. But knowing who our father is, what all comes with sonship, daughtership, it's imperative to walking our calling out. Tom talked a little bit about this in his introduction. I love it when the Lord like kind of taps the same things. <clears throat> if you try and fulfill the call of God on your life on your own, 
Whew, be exhausted. You'd be crazy, probably. Maybe exhausted and crazy. Done some of that. And it feels pointless. And it feels, I don't know, what am I doing? But when you can rest in your Father for strength, for provision, for protection, for guidance, when you can rest, when we can rest in knowing that greater is he that is within us than he that is within the world. That's the magnitude, we say it every week, and I, I know I say that every week because I think it's one of the biggest things that we can understand is that the greater pressure is on the inside. And you know if you take a balloon and you put a whole bunch of PSI of air in that balloon and you stick it underneath water, water's not going in the balloon, air's coming out. Everybody get that picture? It's really, really simple. It's not like, oh, the balloon's filling with water. Not until the air's out, it's not. Air is a greater, it was greater pounds per square inch on the inside. The Holy Spirit is that on the inside. Greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world. The greater pressure resides on the inside of us. And it comes, we, we facilitate, we, we walk in that power and that pressure the more that we understand the Father's heart for us. It becomes easy. It becomes easier. Easy. I'm sorry I said that. It does not always become easy, but it becomes easier. It becomes more natural. It's like, yes, you are for me, Father. When we study Scripture and we see Jesus instead of us, we see, wow, this is a big thing. This is way bigger than me getting a different job or me fixing this relationship or that. It's like way bigger. The gospel is so much bigger. In fact, the gospel is eternal in nature. Is my prayer as we step into whatever God has called you to this week, whatever application of that greater call, that we step into it knowing who is for us. You need to know when you step out of these doors that when you make a mistake, as we all will, and I'm not speaking that prophetically, that's just the nature of this deal. When we make a mistake, you need to know who's running for you. Know that you can run to the Father and he'll meet you halfway. And when you forget to run to the Father, he'll meet you in the mud puddle. We, it's like we love that. Well, if we start running to the Father, then he'll start running to us. And this is a side note, and I was going to be shorter than this, but the the, the father, you think, we think about that story of the prodigal. We see the prodigal son coming, and, and in, our, in our church story version, they're running to each other. It's like, you know, the, the chariots of fire, do, 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 they're running, do, 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 and the father's running. How many of you know, if you stop and put yourself in the kid's shoes, I don't think he was running. I don't think he was excited. I think he was really hungry, but I think he was like, oh, here comes dad. Ah, I gotta tell him. I mean, what if he's coming to attack me? What if he's coming to throw me in prison? What if he's coming, I don't know what, it's like, I don't, you think there was a little bit of trepid, like he's, he might have even, there's a chance that the son turned around. He got partway there, close enough that dad saw him, and then he's like, I can't do this. But the father saw him, and he went running. I'm, that's Adding to, I should have never said that from the pulpit because it's recorded now and people are going to think I'm adding to Scripture, Danny. I'm not adding to Scripture, okay? I just, if you think about that story, the, the father was way more excited to see the son than the son was to see the father. 
So wherever you find yourself this week, you need to know that the Father's heart is for you. You need to know who's coming for you. You need to know that you have a legal right standing with the Father eternally so that you can go to your meetings this week. You can make your hard, difficult phone calls this week. You can answer the phone confidently knowing who is for you. If you would stand with me this morning, I'd like to dismiss us with a declaration. This calling thing, we're going to come back to this calling thing. It's, it's just big. I don't know, the Holy Spirit has really highlighted it on the inside of me. That as we, as we minister, as we walk by faith, we're encouraging each other. We're walking arm in arm, hand in hand. and We're going to come back to this. We're going to keep encouraging each other in the things that the Lord has called us to. We declare this morning, as children of the Most High God, that we are blessed as we go from this place today. Uniquely equipped to carry the gospel to our generation. We didn't get into this story this morning, but we believe with Esther's uncle Mordecai, who thought she was there for such a time as this. We believe with him that we are here for such a time as this. Regardless of the darkness of our society, we carry the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We carry it forward with courage and boldness. This earth isn't fixed yet, so problems are part of our reality. We are thankful today that Jesus promised and he sent his spirit who will never leave us nor forsake us. And that with his presence with us, that that is greater than anything we will ever face. Bow with me if you would. Father, I thank you so much. Thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you are consistent in your word. That all through scripture you reveal this new covenant. That Jesus was able to minister to the men on the road to Emmaus using scripture, none of the New Testament written yet, using that scripture to reveal himself. Father, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus as we study the word. Father, I thank you so much that you run towards us, that you come to meet us, that you are approachable, that you are generous, Father. Father, I just pray that the reverence that Jesus has for you would be refreshed in our hearts and our minds not from a religious perspective, but Lord, that we would understand the weight of the sacrifice that you made by sending Jesus to die and to become human flesh for eternity on our behalf. The creator became the creation on their behalf. Lord, I just pray that that reality would hit home. We would walk out of here confident, bold, as a lion, into our world, into our society, into our families, into our social circles and places of influence, Father, that you would remind us that we are equipped. We don't need to ask you to be equipped, but Lord, I just thank you that you have equipped us. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. We can grow in those things. We can walk and we can strengthen our understanding. And Lord, I just pray that that would become a priority, a greater priority for each person in this room. Father, if there's anybody in here today that does not know you, that's got a question about this 
running to the father or the father running to them that's not sure. I don't know if, I don't know if Jesus' sacrifice was enough for my mistakes. Father, I just pray that you would quicken in them the courage to seek out somebody this morning, myself or somebody for the worship team. Pray that they would come boldly to the throne room of grace, unmerited favor, find help, mercy and grace in time of need. That they would put to rest once and for all the doubts, uncertainty of where they'll fall legally with you. Maybe they haven't done, I don't know if I've done enough. Father, I just pray that you would quiet that and say you can't ever do enough. That's why I sent Jesus, the Christ, the sacrifice, the one chosen from the foundations of the earth. Just pray a blessing over this body that in light of Jesus and his sacrifice, we would go with confidence, hold our head high and carry the gospel boldly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.